Hi, and welcome to Bread. John's Gospel features seven sayings of Jesus which begin with I am. And they serve a singular purpose, to emphatically reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This is a series about these saints. They confront us with the real Jesus and they invite us to meet with him. Because the Christian faith is not primarily a doctrine to believe or a moral code to follow or even an experience to participate in. It is a person to meet. And our hope is that you would meet the living Jesus. Enjoy. Thank you, guys. Um, Good. I want to address a couple of uh, groups of people, three groups of people, actually, uh, this morning, uh, which may or may not be represented by various people uh, in the room. The first of those uh, are those who might call themselves spiritual but not religious. You know them? Okay. Uh, The second is those who might describe themselves as deconstructing the Christianity that they grew up with. And the third is mature and maturing Christians who are hungry and need more. Uh, A week or so after we arrived from uh, the UK in 2016 to plant this church, which seems like a lifetime ago, uh, we were driving, Hannah and I were driving uh, through a beautiful, clean residential street in Culver City, which is like the Starbucks of LA neighborhoods. Um, sort of safe, reliable. Sorry to anyone who lives there. Um, anyway, we were driving down this beautiful residential tree-lined street, and there was a um, man maybe in his 40s who was there, and he was on the sidewalk, walk, sidewalk, sidewalk dressed um, head-to-toe in lycra, orange lycra. Uh, he had an orange headband on, and he had two orange resistance bands, one around his ankles, one around his um, knees. And he was on this street, and his hands were in the sort of on pose. I think that's the on pose. Uh, and his eyes were closed, and he was chanting some um, things to himself. And he was doing um, very exaggerated and painfully slow bunny hops, just up, up like this, going, and obviously having the best time ever. And no one else batted an eyelid. Everyone else totally normal. And Hannah and I looked at each other and sort of went, we're not in England anymore, are we? <laughs> because to that... Uh, that, to, to us, that man represented everything that Europe was not. He did not care one bit what anyone else thought. He was completely unapologetic. And specifically, he seemed to be very open and public about having a spiritual experience. Europe in general is modernist, it's scientific. If it's religious in any way, it's private. Keep it private, don't tell anyone. That's how we do it. Because spirituality is probably for the uneducated or the weak he would have got pelters on the street in London. People are just more spiritual here, are they not? And California, I guess, has traditionally always been the place to escape and to find yourself. There is a reason that there are more cults in California than anywhere else in the world. We win. Uh, We are winning on the cult front. But whilst people are spiritually open, This definitely does not mean that they are dogmatic or moralistic. Far from it. 
for many out there, they do not want to be pinned down. They do not want to be narrow in their beliefs or their reasoning. To be so is to be seen as being closed off and small-minded. We're spiritual, but we're not religious. Because being religious is synonymous with being judgmental. It is often the perceived dogmatism of Christianity that is the reason that people want to distance themselves from it. It's not actually that Christianity is seen as spiritually unfilling for many people, although for some, obviously, it it has been that too. And it's not that it's seen as rationally unconvincing, although uh, for some, of course, it's that too. It's seen as being moralistic in the worst of possible ways. So be spiritual, but don't be dogmatic. Be spiritual, do not be religious. The problem, though, is this necessarily affects the sort of spirituality to which people are then drawn. With such a fear of being rigid about anything, about having any absolutes, spirituality necessarily has to be a little bit vague and undefined. It can't be too concrete, and it's therefore, in being quite vague, allows people to sort of pick and choose whatever you like. A bit of this faith, a bit of that faith, a bit of no faith. But the problem is, and just by way of an example, Hinduism says there are lots of gods. Judeo-Christianity says there's one god. Buddhism says there's not really any gods. How on earth do you resolve that? You can't. So you have to keep it vague. Let's not delve too deeply into what we actually believe because we might find ourselves tying ourselves in knots. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for people's reticence towards the Christianity that they may have been uh, um, confronted with or has been represented to them. Uh, I came to faith having rejected the Christianity that I just thought was completely moralistic, completely judgmental, probably not true, etc., etc. It was very helpful for me to go through that process. But the irony and the heart of the problem is that the original message of the gospel is not dogmatic at all. It's not moralistic. But nor is it unspiritual. And it's definitely not vague and undefined. Instead, the Christian gospel in its original form transcends all of those categories. And it says instead, come and meet an actual person. Second group those who are deconstructing the Christianity of their upbringing. It's very normal and, in fact, necessary for people to grow into their faith. Your faith is not your parents. Ditch theirs. Your faith is not your pastor's. Ditch his or hers. It's yours, and so it's got to fit you. Almost certainly, this will involve working out what you actually believe, what you actually believe, you. If you picture your Christian faith as like a house, the house that you've been living in, there will be some rooms that are wonderfully decorated, they're nice to be in, they make sense, they're right, and they're great. There will be other rooms, though, which could do with some remodeling. The furniture doesn't fit. If they ever worked, they certainly don't work now. And maybe a wall needs to come down here and some new wallpaper go up there. And then, of course, there are other rooms which just need to be torn down. They never worked. They weren't right. They have actually inhibited the whole flow of the house. They were wrong in the first place. Knock them down. 
And there are lots of good intellectually well-argued books and podcasts that you can read, that you can listen to, that will help you understand the Bible in more depth, perhaps. It will help you to answer some of those questions. And it will show you what actually needs to go and what can stay and what just needs to be changed a bit. I recommend them. The issue here, though, is in a never-ending pursuit of intellectual truth, we actually can miss the wood for the trees. Because again, Jesus isn't primarily to be rationally tested or intellectually conceived, although he can and he should be. He should be put to the test. In the same way, he isn't primarily to be obeyed, although he can and he should be. Jesus is primarily to be met. Always has been, always will be. Christianity, the gospel, at its most fundamental level, is a person. It's not a doctrine. It's not a way of behaving. It's a person. And so the Christian contention is this. Whoever we are, spiritual but not religious, deconstructed and deconstructing, as well as mature Christians, whom I will come on to in a minute, we all actually have the same need, the need to meet with the Jesus. For the first time, again, the first time in a long time, or over and over again, whoever you are, without him, we are playing at Christianity. We need to meet with the person in order for us to grow and to be fulfilled and to have the life that we sense. So more Jesus, that's what we need. How do we meet him? Well, we meet him by allowing what he says about himself to penetrate the very depths of who we are. We allow him and what he says about himself, who he is, to impact and penetrate not just our minds, not just our spirits, not just our emotions, but all of what makes us a person. And so this is the um, basis for the series that we are beginning today, which is we are going to be looking at the seven I am sayings of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. So there are seven miracles in the Gospel of John, and they all point to Jesus and his identity as the Son of God. And then uh, with these, there are seven I am sayings all doing the same thing. Now, in Jewish understanding, the one true God had revealed himself to Abraham. Abraham is wandering around, herding some sheep, Uh, looking after some cattle, minding his own business. And the real God, the true God, reveals himself to him and says, I am the one. All the gods of the surrounding nations were regularly dismissed throughout the Old Testament as idols or nothings. In contrast, the real thing, the only actual God, was and is Israel's, the people of God's, revealed uniquely to them. However, his holiness is such that his name cannot be uttered. When Moses meets the one true God and asks him his name, the response comes back, I am who I am. That's it. And so God, throughout the Jewish scriptures, is assigned the designator, Yahweh, which effectively has the same meaning, I am. But this title is so holy, it cannot be uttered. In fact, when scripture is read in public, the name is just skipped over. It's left as a blank. Such is the reverence for this term. So, Jesus turns up and he pronounces himself, I am. 
the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. This is extreme blasphemy. How dare you to speak out loud, I am, if that's not sacrilegious enough, to then assign it God's holy name to yourself is inviting your own funeral at the hands of religious people. So, without further ado, let us read from John chapter 8, and Christina's going to read this, and this is, um, I am the light of the world. I had to think about that. I'm talking about this the whole time. I am the light of the world. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is my Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. Thank you, Christina. I am the light of the world. Uh, Let us consider light for a while on a nice sunny Sunday morning. 2,000 years after Jesus said these words, what we know about the nature of light What it does and can do is significantly more than his original audience. But it only serves to make the metaphor all the more striking and powerful. Light is both wonderful and awesome in equal measure. And when I say awesome, I mean it not in the, um, that's really nice latte art. I mean like awesome, frightening, scary in its wonder and power. Wonderful and awesome in equal measure. Wonderful because without light, nothing lives. Nothing grows, nothing thrives, everything dies. Verse 12, light is the source of all life as we know it. He comes to bring life with his light. Every plant and tree and fish and animal and bird and human being that has ever lived have been there because of light. As uh, one British comedian once put it, it's extraordinary. We're just the right distance from the sun for all this wonder to occur. Mercury, nothing. Venus, nothing. Earth, fridge magnets, hummus, Spandau Ballet, anything you want. All because of light. Isn't it extraordinary? You ever stop and think, "This this is ridiculous. Look, people in here. All because of light. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's the basic source of life. And it's also the basic source of truth. Verse 16, Jesus proclaims that his declarations are true because he's the light of the world. 
dive bars are dark and dingy. Hospital theatres are bright and shiny. People go to dive bars for cheap drinks and to have a great night, but also, and this is definitely part of it, for a few hours of just going to the darkness and escaping for a while, not seeing things as clearly. When you go to have open heart surgery, you want the theater to be as light as possible, for the doctor's eyes to be as clear as possible, and for none of the nurses to be wearing eye patches. This is what you want. You want that room to be completely filled with the brightest, clearest light imaginable. Because light shows things exactly as they are. It's the most basic source of truth. Now, no one, none of you, not one of you would have ever done this before. But I've heard that some people do do this. They go to nightclubs. And then, after a while of being in that nightclub, they kiss someone that they don't know. And then the next morning, they go, that wasn't exactly the person I was expecting. Because light enters our eyes and our retinas, and it tells us exactly what things are actually like. It's wonderful in that way. And with light comes joy and life. Uh, on Friday, it was Hannah's birthday. Thank you for sending her cards and presents. That was very kind of you. On Friday, we went as a family to celebrate Hannah's birthday. And we went to a uh, hotel pool with the kids. And uh, we got lunch there and we sunbathed. And we enjoyed the environment, the beautiful grounds. And uh, we went swimming. And at one point, as we were sort of just floating in this crystal clear pool, with the perfect sun in a cloudless sky beating down on us. And the temperature got to like just the perfect kind of 85 degrees. And we looked at each other and went, our life's all right, isn't it? Because it was. Because it's wonderful. Because light brings joy. In England, where there is no sunlight, <laughs> people look like this. Constantly just look like this. Ever met a Brazilian where there is lots of sunshine? They look like this. <laughs> the wonderful, life-giving, joy-inducing light. Have you lost it? Have you lost it? What about its awesome power? Are you aware of it? If we were only a fraction further from the sun, its light would not reach us with enough power to actually sustain anything. If we were a fraction closer to the sun, it would burn us all up to a crisp. It doesn't just bring and sustain joyous life. It's so potent that it could wipe us out in an instant. Now, there is a certain amount of debate, isn't there, about all the reasons for why the ozone layer is being destroyed. But everyone, both climate change deniers on the one hand and normal people on the other, all agree, I know, don't go political, just don't. Stop it. But everyone, whichever camp you fall in, agrees no ozone is bad. 
Such is the awesome power of unmediated sunlight. Without a barrier, it's so powerful, it literally kills people. Frighteningly powerful, actually. And what its power can also do is expose things. Things sometimes we don't want to be exposed. Um, I've started working out, as you can tell. I do this from time to time. And I've started working out uh, sometimes in my bedroom where there is a full-length mirror on the wall. And sometimes during my workout, I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror. And I think, I wish I was working out in a dive bar. Because light exposes things, sometimes things we really don't want to see. Joy bringing, life giving, truth revealing, darkness exposing, awesomely powerful light. And Jesus says, I am that light. The light of the whole universe. An extraordinary thing to say. Verse 20. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This is the point. Jesus said this, and it was a huge surprise that no one seized him because of what he was saying. The fact what he said is so incendiary we have touched upon, but we can go a little bit deeper if you don't mind. From the previous chapter, we know that this episode occurs in the temple during what's known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And in fact, this is happening on the final night of that feast. This festival happened once a year during harvest time, and it was observed in part to commemorate God's provision for the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. So it was a celebration of provision. There were feasts, and there were dancing, and there was a ceremony of water to commemorate when God produced water from the rock for the people of Israel as they wandered through the desert. But most importantly for our passage, there was a huge candelabra in the temple, 75 foot high. It was so big that it actually gave light to the whole city. You could see it from everywhere. It would burn every night during this feast. And each night, it was, uh, the lighting of it was accompanied by joyous dancing and celebration. What it represented is what is important. As you will remember, when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt, during their wanderings, they were led by a um, cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. But these pillars weren't just supernatural pillars given by God to the people so that they could see where they're going. Exodus 13 says that they were much more than that. This is what the Lord Almighty says, they are me, myself. They were the glory of the I am. The Lord himself went before them and went after them. He it was who gave them light because he was the light. So, The lighting of the candelabra during this festival commemorates not just how God gave them light in the wilderness, but also he gave himself to light their way. It was his actual glory, the presence of the I Am guiding them, protecting them, sustaining them, lighting their way, giving them hope and joy. But here's the thing. On the final night of the festival, the candelabra would not be lit. 
and all the decorations of the feast would be brought down. The dancing would cease. All this because, whilst they celebrated what God had done in the past, they knew that it was not the reality of their present. God himself and his glory was no longer there. As Ezekiel, the prophet, had already declared it, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. And they longed for him return, to return. When will the Messiah come? When will we be delivered? When will the I Am and his glory rescue us again? Enter stage right. Jesus of Nazareth. In the temple, on the final day of the feast, the candelabra is not lit. He stands under this 75-foot high thing and says, I am. I am the light of the world. I'm the one you've been waiting for, the one you've been longing for. I am the glory of God. I am your guide and your protector and your sustainer. I am your life and your truth and your joy. Not in a partial or incomplete way. I'm not here today and gone tomorrow. Call off the search. I am forever. I'm not someone to remember, to think back upon the good old times. I'm right here and right now and always complete. I am. Mic drop. It does make a mockery of the liberal idea that Jesus didn't know who he was or never really pretended to be anything like the God that Christians have made him to be. He's standing there under the light going, I am. It's the most shocking, blasphemous, unequivocal, unapologetic declaration of godness that there has ever been. No wonder people hated him. But what Jesus is doing here is he's not talking in abstract terms. This isn't some sort of philosophical, disconnected thought that's going on of, I can show you the light, I can show you the way. This is something tangible to follow, something to grasp and to see and to meet. Jesus is saying, I am the light and I will pour my light into you. I am a person. Come, follow and meet me. This is actually Jesus' response to the age-old question of whether there can be truth in other philosophies and religions. Ever asked yourself that? Ever been asked that? Of course there can be truth and goodness and light in other religions and philosophies. Of course there can. Surely there can. And there is. As people often find, their friends who aren't Christians, often they're much nicer than their Christian friends. How can that be? It is not a trick. It is not an illusion. They are actually nicer. They just are. Because, of course, there's light and goodness all over the place, isn't there? Jesus isn't saying there isn't truth and thought that is useful for life elsewhere in this world. But here's the thing. Every other religion and philosophy is an attempt to connect to God. Every other religious leader points people away from themselves and to something else whether it's the meaning of life or God or something else, Jesus is saying, I am the Son. I am the beautiful, burning, white-hot, light-giving Son, and everything else is just a moon. It may reflect a bit of me. 
and you can, if the clouds are gone and the sky is clear, sort of navigate by the light of a full moon. But Jesus is saying, I'm the sun. He's wonderful and he's awesome. And he alone is the light of the world. But that doesn't mean we need to be afraid of him. Can his light burn through your eyeballs, extinguish your retinas, turn you to a crisp? Absolutely it can. He's the sun. But it never ever will. The problem people often have um, with the Old Testament is that the God who appears there seems so different to the God of the New Testament. I don't believe this is true. I don't think Christianity says it's true. They're exactly the same God. But the problem of the Old Testament is the problem of an unmediated God. He is raw, direct, awesome, frighteningly powerful God. No one can stand in his presence. When Moses meets with God, God tells him to stand in the cleft of uh, the hillside so that he is not consumed. The people of God hide their faces from him. In fact, the whole issue at the heart of the Old Testament is how is it that anyone can ever be left standing in his presence? Such is the pure potency of the utter holiness of God. But in Jesus, all this all-consuming holiness is mediated. He becomes one of us. He dies for all of us, and the blinding bright light of God's perfect holiness is not diminished. It's simply mediated through him, diverted through him. And every single one of us, therefore, can have no fear in looking full in the face of our God, of the light of the world. I'm the light of the world, says Jesus. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, why do we find it so difficult? Why don't we want to look at him? I think the issue that every single one of us is always the same. Whether we're exploring Christianity, deconstructing unhelpful versions, or whether we're mature, died in the wool, been there, done that people, the issue is the same. Deep down, are we really sure that we want to look into the light to fully see what it might be like? To turn our eyes towards it? Because what might we find there? Let me suggest some things that we might find there. We might find that the light of the world wants to lead us somewhere completely new. In one, on one level, it might be that he wants to lead us into actual belief in him, into putting our lives in his hands, trusting him in becoming a Christian. That he's actually who he says he is, that he's the true God, that there's no one else, it's just him. And that we need to stop holding him at arm's length. On another level, it might be that he's wanting to lead us away from some things, some things that we've chosen. We've chosen without him, we've chosen with good intentions and bad intentions, things that we thought would do us good that really are not. We might also find, if we were to look at the light of the world, that what the light wants to do is expose some darkness. 
What part of your life do you not want anyone else to see? Don't say it out loud. It'd be very embarrassing. Everyone's got them. The hidden bits. But Jesus knows. And he understands. And he doesn't reject you or shame you. You could tell him things you could not tell another person on earth. But because he doesn't want you to be ashamed, what he's come to do is deal with the shame. To expose the things that cause us shame. Not to make us feel terrible about them, but so that he can get rid of them. He doesn't want us to carry them around, have them follow us with us, our history and our past and the things that we regret. That's what he comes to do. That's what the light of the world comes to do. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us all our unrighteousness. And finally, what might we see if we look into the light? We might see that he wants to grow us with his light, to move us, to change us. Are you a mature Christian? Are you feeling a little stagnated? What looking into the light means is an end to the status quo. If you've been a Christian for a long time, there will be inevitable times of just feeling a bit stagnant. Feeling, I've heard it all before, do I really need this again? Same thing. And you probably have. Most of it. But these times always confront us with a choice. Are we going to settle? Or are we going to step out in faith? Are we going to take what we know, what we've seen, and use it to help other people? Jesus doesn't just show us the light of the world. He pours his light into us so that it would reflect out of us. He fills us with his light so that we can grow into people like him who didn't come to be served, but to serve. So don't just be a consumer of Jesus. Do be a consumer of Jesus. Consume as much Jesus as you possibly can, but don't just be a consumer of Jesus. Also be a giver of Jesus. It is how you grow. I've been doing this for quite a long time. Forgive me. I have been leading a church. The people I have seen grow, they only have one thing in common. They want to be used. And they do not care. Two things. They want to be used. And they open themselves to being used. They learn what it is to give away. They learn what it is to take the tiny little immature speck of faith that they have and help someone else with it. They've not kept it to themselves. It's not supposed to be just yours. It's supposed to be given away. Help people with it. Now, of course, none of us know all the answers. There are parts of our lives that are a bit of a mess, but welcome to the club. It's always going to be like that. Get over it. I'm not allowed to say that anymore. Uh, get over it. People who are mature are people who've chosen to do things like lead small groups. They've invited their friends to Alpha. They've led and helped on Alpha. They've learned how to pray in the power of the Spirit. And they've actually prayed for people in the power of the Spirit. Have you ever prayed for healing? Hannah had a prophetic word about healing. Have you ever prayed for healing? You should. You should. 
Because wouldn't it be amazing if God used you to heal someone? And wouldn't you want to do it more? Yes, I know all the reasons why it's difficult, and we never want to say that people are healed when they're not. Suffering is real. We totally believe in that. But do you know what Jesus spent a lot of his time doing? Healing people. So why don't we learn to pray for healing? And then people will go, oh, wow, that person's been healed. Maybe there is something in this Christianity after all. They've led Bible studies. They've opened up their homes to people, people they don't even know. They've used their gifts to serve in kids' church, in worship, in welcome, in serving the city, in menial things, but very important things like doing the lyrics. They have given themselves away. And this is what we're called to do. Do you want to grow? Give yourself away in whatever possible capacity you can. The beauty of the church is that no one's alike. You're all very, very different. So we're not going to be treading on people's toes. It's not about who who can be the best. It's about doing what you are particularly called to do. Giving yourself to the church so that you might grow and other people might grow. It's amazing what it will do. And this is what I just want to kind of plug it. Um, What's so important about 4x4. 4x4 is not just a way of maturing in our faith and learning more. It's actually a leadership development tool. It, because what we are expecting is that the people who go through it will then lead it. And then they'll um, bring other people in who will lead it. And it will keep perpetuating. And it will grow. Because if you want to grow, you need to lead. Got it? Good. It all, whoever we are, starts in the same place. Looking towards the light of Jesus. Looking full in his face. Not being afraid. Knowing that he's kind and he likes you and that he wants to pour his light into you to illuminate everything, to bring everything to life and to joy. Amen. Amen. Let us stand and sing a song.